welcome once again. My name is Derek McCollum, and if I haven't met you, I would love to. We're happy to be here this morning. We have been, uh, over the course of this summer, in a series on the book of Proverbs. Uh, if some of you remember back to the beginning of the summer, if you were here, we defined wisdom as skill in the art of godly living. So it's a practice, it's something we learn, but it's also something with the goal of not just us becoming better at doing life, although that's a nice byproduct, but of us actually becoming more like Jesus, of us pursuing godliness, of us being conformed into the image of the Lord. One of the things that Proverbs addresses, and Proverbs addresses uh, many different topics, one of the things that we're going to talk about today is pride. What does Proverbs have to say about pride? What does it mean to be wise in relation to pride and humility? So let me read some of these Proverbs to you, uh, and then we will dive in this morning. Here's a selected Proverbs dealing with pride and humility. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Uh, these are selections from Proverbs, and they are God's Word, and we are thankful for it. Let me pray for us. My God and Father, we are indeed thankful for your Word this morning from Proverbs. Lord, I should simply start by confessing my own pride, my desire to be lifted above others. Will you purge that from me even now? And Lord, will you bring us further into conformity with your word and with the living, living word, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. So let me start with some good news for you. Uh, if you are like most people, you are well above average at least um, according to studies, you think you're well above average. Uh, in fact, uh, numerous studies have been done uh, that, that kind of coincide with what's oftentimes called the Lake Wobegon effect, uh, named after the Garrison Keillor's fictional town where all of the children are above average. And the idea is that most of us actually have a higher opinion of ourselves than we should. In fact, there was a study done on a million high school students and they just asked them, you know, uh, how do you relate to other, uh, to other peers, you know, versus the people around you? And 60% of those high school students put themselves in the top 10%. 25% of them put themselves in, in the top 1%. They did the same uh, study on college professors who you would think maybe would be a little bit more self-aware, came up with basically exactly the same info. According to statistics... We think a lot more highly of ourselves than we should. I love actually the way that this one, uh, one of the statisticians, one of the guys who, who did the study, this, is, this was his comment. Uh, he, says, he says that um, 
it's the great contradiction that the average person believes he's a better person than the average person. Isn't that great? The average person believes he's a better person than the average person. Now, statistics, of course, uh, confirm what the Bible has been proclaiming for a long, long time, and that's that human beings are prideful, is that we have something in our hearts at the center of our being that makes us think that we are better than other people, that makes us think that the average person is better than the average person. Well, you find pride showing up in just the very first few pages of the Bible, don't you? That's the serpent's temptation to Adam and Eve. Listen, you you don't need to be content with being created in God's image. You don't need to be content with actually being in perfect union with him. You don't need to be content with being his creature. What you need is to be the creator. What you need is to be God. And of course, Adam and Eve fell for that lie, and the world has been in that state of brokenness and been dealing with pride ever since. Pride is simply our desire and our tendency so oftentimes to put ourselves at the center of our universe and the center of everyone else's universe and the center of the whole universe and to make it all revolve around us. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're actually going to talk about um, uh, five effects of pride, five things that actually pride does in us and ways that it shows up in us, and then five tools for fighting pride. That's right, it's a 10-point sermon this morning, but it's okay. Don't, don't freak out. We're going to get through it. All right, here's the first thing that pride does in us is it creates foolishness. Pride creates foolishness in us. I don't know if you remember 1986, the space shuttle Challenger exploded. A terrible tragedy. I, I was in sixth grade at the time. I actually grew up in a Houston suburb very close to NASA and so a lot of my friends actually had parents who worked at NASA. Uh, the pilot, actually, of the Challenger lived in my neighborhood. Their family lived in my neighborhood. So it, it hit very close to home. And I remember being in my sixth grade English class and our teacher kind of bringing us around and telling us what had happened. What I didn't remember until I just looked at it recently was that that, that launch had been actually delayed multiple times. And one of the reasons that it was delayed is because the weather in Florida at the time where the launch was, was just unseasonably cold. And as they went to launch, there was actually a conference call the night before with a lot of the engineers that had been working on this project, and particularly the engineers that had designed the O-rings that were supposed to go on the engine boosters. And they were really worried because they had never tested the O-rings at a temperature below 53 degrees. And they were afraid that in the colder weather that they might fail. And so they actually objected. The lead engineer was this guy named Alan McDonald. And he actually objected to the launch, wanted to delay it further. But NASA pressed on. Even though he wouldn't sign off on it, they got his boss to sign off on it. And of course, the rest is history. And what they found afterwards was that the issue was the O-rings. It was just too cold. And they had failed. Why would NASA do this? Why would NASA press on even in the face of the smart people around them who would advise them not to? Well, McDonald, Alan McDonald, that engineer, was, um, he was interviewed afterwards, and this is what he says. He said, NASA had become too successful. They had gotten by for a quarter of a century and had never lost a single person going into space. And they had rescued the Apollo 13 halfway to the moon when part of the vehicle blew up. It seemed like it was an impossible task, but they did it. 
So how could this cold O-ring cause a problem when they had done so much over the past years to be successful? All of this success gives you a little bit of arrogance that you shouldn't have. But they hadn't stumbled yet, and so they just pressed on. You see how pride creates foolishness in us? Foolishness that sometimes can have really disastrous, really terrible effects. There's a second thing pride uh, produces in us, and that's perfectionism. Now, maybe that sounds kind of weird to you. Maybe it sounds kind of weird in the same way that maybe even pride spoken negatively sounds weird. When I was in college, it was kind of the thing uh, that people would counsel you when you were going for a job interview, and, and the, the interviewer said, well, tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the things you struggle with, you know, and you were supposed to say, well, I'm a perfectionist, right? And that was kind of your way of giving this like, oh, it's a, it's a struggle, but it's really a strength, right? You know, I'm a perfectionist, because oftentimes we actually think that's a good thing. But here's the real issue is that pride so oftentimes can produce in us a kind of perfectionism that locks us up. Where we have to have everything so perfect, where we have to achieve everything uh, according to whatever standard we or somebody else sets for our lives. And we get so locked up in that that it can actually be incredibly debilitating. Uh, If you have ever um, struggled to start something or not joined in in something for the fear of failure, or felt uh, debilitated and your life has just completely fallen apart because you didn't reach the standard you had set for yourself, then you may struggle with perfectionism. And it's probably fed by pride, the thing that locks us up into not even being able to move unless we can do or achieve something perfectly. How about a third effect? And it is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, of course, shows up in so many different ways. And if we are proud, if we are those who are at the center of our own universe, then we are certainly going to put ourselves at the center of other people's universes too, right? And so when we come into contact with others, we start puffing ourselves up. You know, maybe I'm a little bit better than this next person. I'm probably a little bit closer to, again, whatever that standard is. And I mean, can't we just be self-righteous about the silliest stuff even? You know, you go to somebody's house, you say, Where, where's, your, uh, where's your recycling bin? Oh, you do recycle, right? Or, you know, or about our schooling decisions. Uh, you're sending your children to a public school? Are you really ready for the government brainwashing? Or, you're sending your children to a Christian school? Don't you love your neighbors and want to engage them with the gospel? You homeschool your children? Aren't you afraid they're going to turn out like weirdos? right? No matter what it is, we've got our pride about it, whatever we've chosen. Or, you know, our children and their achievements, most evidenced by the stickers that we put on our car. My child is an honor student. My child is the most honored student. My child and all of my children are more honored honored students than your children's honor students. And oh, by the way, they play football really well too. Or, you know, the other stickers about how far we can run, and it's a lot farther than you can run. 5K, half marathon, full marathon, Ironman triathlon, ultra marathon. I mean, my favorite sticker is the one that says, you know, zero, I don't run. But in a way, that one's kind of fueled by pride too, or it's kind of counterpart of cynicism that says, you know, I'm not even going to try. You know, unfortunately, we can even be proud about our understanding of the gospel. Well, those people 
those other Christians, they just don't get the gospel like we do. We're the ones who really have the secret knowledge. We're the ones who really have it all right. Self-righteousness. It's insidious, isn't it? How about this one? Discontent. Pride is such a joyless sin. There is no joy in pride because it always leads to discontentment. Augustine's famous prayer is, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Do you feel restless? Does your life feel restless? It may be because pride is fueling your discontentment. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts this when he's talking about pride. Listen to this. He says, pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. It is the pleasure of being above the rest. There is no joy in pride. It leads to nothing but discontentment. Because honestly, if we are the center of our own universe, that's going to end at some point. If we are the center of our own universe and our universe starts to fall apart, then that's going to bring about a lot of discontent in us. It's also going to really change our relationships, which is the fifth thing that pride leads to, and that is relational destruction. If we are proud, then the people around us are only going to be pawns in us actually getting what we want out of life. Have you ever been friends with somebody who's really, really arrogant and just kind of wondered, I don't really know if they like me or if they like what I can do for them. That's what pride does to us. Pride makes us use people as kind of check boxes, as steps toward whatever better place we want to get in our lives. It makes us turn people into things. If pride is driving us, our relationships will be destroyed. Have you ever seen a puffer fish? They're really kind of cute, pretty cool little fish. Uh, it looks like a small little fish at first, but when they're in danger, they can puff themselves up to like, you know, 20 times their normal size. They fill their bellies with water and air, and they just look like this little floating ball. And it's, it's, it's all nice and cute and fun until somebody gets hurt because they actually are really poisonous. And for fish, that can be really dangerous. For humans, it can be even more dangerous is that the poison inside a puffer fish is like 1,200 times more dangerous than cyanide. In one pufferfish could kill 30 adults. That's how poisonous it is. You know, the same thing happens in our relationships. We, we kind of puff ourselves up, and we feel really good about it, and we feel real big. But pride is absolute poison to relationships. It will absolutely ruin your marriage. It will absolutely ruin your friendships. It will absolutely ruin the church because it just spreads that poison everywhere. And of course, it's not just poison to people. It's poison to our relationship with the Lord, isn't it? See, when pride starts to rule our hearts, 
it's contrary to the message of the gospel. The gospel says your ability is small and your, uh, and your need is great. And so what you need is a God whose ability is great and his mercy is great. That's the good news of the gospel. Our ability is small. Our need is great. And God has met that need through the work of Christ on our behalf. He has done so graciously. We haven't earned it. He's given it to us. That's the good news of the gospel. But what pride says is just the opposite. Pride says, my need is small. My ability is great. And so I don't really need anybody to save me. I just need some check boxes along the way. And so instead of becoming our savior, God becomes our servant. And like any of our other relationships, we begin to use him to get what we want out of life. Friends, that is not the gospel. It is contrary to the gospel. Pride and the gospel do not ever go together. They are like oil and water. They never mix. And it will ruin your understanding of Christianity. Now let me give you, before we move on to the, to the steps in, in fixing it and combating it, let, let, me just, let me just give you a little homework today. If you want some really difficult homework, go home and ask your spouse or your friend which of those five things they see in your life, and then buckle up. It probably won't be all that fun, but it'll be helpful. All right, let's move on then. What, what's, the, what's, the, um, what, what's the tool? What are the tools we've been given to fight pride? What's the answer? Well, here's the first thing, is we are called to speak. Speak, and by that I mean confess. God gives us the wonderful privilege of being honest with him and with one another. And when we confess our sins, he tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Again, pride leads us to hide, but humility leads us to confession. Uh, in the, the first great awakening in our country, really where uh, the Holy Spirit was moving in incredible ways, and, and people were coming to know Jesus in just by the thousands. And one of the leaders of that movement, a man named Jonathan Edwards, was leading a prayer group uh, full of 800 men. Can you imagine that? Isn't that cool? 800 men gathered together to pray. And, and, and one wife had actually come in, and she had given him a little note. And she just said, I just want you to pray for my husband. He's really struggling with pride and anger and so many of these things that we've just talked about. And Edwards uh, thought, you know what? I think I'm going to share this actually with the whole group because the man who she's talking about might be here and it might be an opportunity for him to come and confess his sins. So he shared that, new, that note and he said, I'd like the person who this is written about to raise their hand. 300 men raised their hands. They did so because they understood the wonderful benefit of honesty, of confession. They were able to speak the truth to one another and to the Lord. That's our first wonderful tool that we get in combating pride in our lives. Here's the second. Listen. Don't just speak, but listen. Uh, Proverbs 15, 32, we already read this. Listen again. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Let me invite you to listen to those around you. Listen to your wife or your husband. Listen to your children. Listen to your coworkers and your employees. Put people in your life who will actually talk to you and say the truth. If there is no one in your life who tells you no, 
you were in danger. You were in real danger of succumbing to pride. We need people in our lives who have the ability to tell us when we're off track. We need to listen to others or we will end up in foolishness and self-righteousness and all of those things we've talked about. Here's the third thing. Connect. So we got speak, listen, and now connect. Connect with those around you. Connect with the people that God has put in front of you. This is one of the wonderful benefits of being a part of the church. We are not called to Lone Ranger Christianity. We are not called to walk this path on our own. Your walk with God, as Paul Tripp puts it, is a community project. And so engage in that community project. I saw a story about the governor of South Carolina about 10 years ago. Maybe you remember this. Uh, He was caught uh, in moral failure. He had been traveling to South America to see a woman who was not his wife. This man was a Christian. He, he He had been going to church. And when he took office, actually his friends asked him, so, okay, you've taken the office now as governor. Where are you going to engage in church? Where are you going to worship regularly? What small group are you going to be a part of? And you know what he said was, I'm just going to be too busy. Friends, when we decline the beautiful grace of community, when we do not connect with others, we open ourselves to a myriad of sins. Here's the fourth thing. Serve. Serve those around you. I don't know if you've heard of this guy named Nick Walenda. Nick Walenda is a, is a high wire artist, actually one of the most famous in the world. Uh, most of his uh, feats over the last 10 years or so have been watched by billions, literally, of people. He has 11 world records. In 2012, he was the first man to walk across Niagara Falls. And then in the next year, he decided to walk across the Grand Canyon. No, I'm not going to do that. That doesn't sound very fun to me, but it sounds pretty amazing. But Nick Walenda has this incredible spiritual practice that he goes about after every one of his shows, is that he waits until all of the fans, everybody who's gathered, he waits until they're all gone, and then he walks around where they were, and he picks up trash. That's his spiritual practice to combat pride. He picks up the trash left by the people around him. Listen to what he says about this. I love the way he explains it. He said, after the inordinate amount of attention that I sought and received, I need to keep myself grounded. Three hours of cleaning up debris is good for my soul. Humility does not come naturally to me. So I have to force myself into situations that are humbling. I know that I need to get down on my hands and knees like everyone else. I do it because if I don't serve others... I'll be serving nothing but my own ego. Isn't that beautiful? Bruce Waltke, the biblical scholar, when he's commenting on Proverbs, he says this. He says, the righteous are willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the community. The wicked, in Proverbs, are willing to sacrifice the community for their own sake. Let me say that again. The righteous are willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the community. The wicked, as described in Proverbs, sacrifice the community for their own sake. If you want to start chipping away at pride in your life, if you want to start building even protection against pride in your own heart, if you want to work humility deep into your soul, serve the people around you. All right, here's the final thing. It is worship. And this is not just final, but actually primary for us. 
Proverbs says, in fact, over and over as one of the foundational principles of wisdom is that it begins with the fear of the Lord. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. That's also where pride ends. Because when we have God in his right place at the center of the universe, when we have made God big and us small, we are starting now to understand the way that things should be. When we see God's holiness, when we see his greatness, when we see his glory and his power and his splendor, and when we rightfully see our own failings and our own limitations and our own sin and our own struggle, we see that enormous gap and it actually puts us where we need to be, not where we oftentimes put ourselves. But we also get to see the glorious news that our God himself is humble. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, who is God, took on the form of a servant, emptied himself, humbled himself, even to the point of death on a cross, so that we might be saved, so that God might not be our servant, but our Savior, so that he might actually work in us the humility that brings us to union with him. And, and Philippians, Paul says, Jesus is glorified, and that's how we find glory as well. It's the crazy backward economy of the gospel, right? Is that when we seek glory for ourselves, we can't find it. When we are humbled before the Lord, he glorifies us. Isn't that beautiful? If you want to see foolishness erased from your life, or at least a little bit of it erased from your life, it's humility where we find it. Cling to the gospel, and we will actually see that discontent start to chip away. And we'll embrace our limitations. Cling to the gospel. And we will see self-righteousness in our life actually start to fade. Cling to the gospel. And, and instead of pursuing perfectionism, we'll actually start to embrace our limits. And we'll humbly walk with the Lord. And we'll humbly walk with others. Let me close with this story and we'll be done. How do we do this? It is always on our knees. Because again, remember... We can even times, sometimes approach the Lord and think about the gospel with pride in our eyes. I, I don't know about you, but um, the way that I oftentimes approach the dentist is the way that I oftentimes approach God. Right? You got a dentist appointment, and so, you know, for about a week before your appointment, you just floss the mess out of those things, you know, and brush, you know, harder than you've ever brushed in your life, thinking, you know, I, I can do this. For this week, I can get these things so cleaned up that I'll get to the dentist and she'll go, oh, that looks so good, right? Like she's not going to know that my gums are all inflamed and my mouth is bloody because I've been flossing the mess out of them for a week. Of course she knows. She's a dentist. She looks at teeth all the time. Sometimes we can think the same thing about God, right? That, you know, if I just get these couple of little sins under control. If I kind of just wash myself up and, and present myself as good, then really what will happen is that God will realize that I don't really need it. That is the path to destruction, friends. The path to glory is for us to know that we desperately need the grace of the Lord and that he has graciously and wonderfully given it to us. Let me invite you to take a look at the ways that pride shows up in your heart. And then turn to the wonderful and humble love and mercy of Jesus given to you. And ask him to remove it. 
Will you do that with me even now? Let's pray.